please flick back with me to Psalm 2, where we had our reading earlier. It will just help you follow along in our time together and also help you to make sure that what I'm saying is, is true. I currently work as a funeral director in Edinburgh, and amongst many other things, it means that I end up sitting in a lot of funerals listening to eulogies. And I must have heard hundreds of them. I've watched as people have recounted the things that made their loved ones special, the things that gave them happiness. And so I want to ask you this morning, what gives your life happiness? What gives your life purpose? What makes your life blessed? The blessed life is sometimes seen as the life in which you have the right kind of people around you. That you could look back on your life and you could know it was good if you spent it with family, with your partner, with the children you had. You could be happy if you had friends who cared for you deeply and you cared deeply for Sometimes people's lives are marked as happy because of their achievements, the achievements they made in their fields, the effort they put in at work, the lives that they touched and made better, that they went from being a nobody to a somebody. Their sporting achievements, their business achievements, their family achievements, the list goes on. Maybe it's the accumulation of things and money. A happy life is maybe often marked by experiences, holidays abroad, time spent with loved ones, faithfully supporting a sports team despite their ups and downs, being knowledgeable about certain things, being practical in certain ways, being loving and attentive to others. The happy life seems to be the one in which you live as you want, being who you want, succeeding in all that you do. The first two Psalms in the book of Psalms are all about the blessed life. They tell us what the blessed life really looks like. If you were here last week, Dan took us through Psalm 1, and we saw that true blessing lies in God's word, in delighting in it, in obeying it, in delighting in the one who obeyed it fully. This morning, I want us to see that true blessing comes through being obedient to God's king. You see, the blessed life is not the one that is filled with certain friends or family, work, money, experiences, achievement, identity, or anything else. No. The blessed life is the one in which we live lives in submission to God's king. If you were to ask your colleagues, your friends, your family, or the public out there where they thought blessing lied, I doubt many of them would say living a life following Jesus. In fact, some of them might actually think you're a wee bit crazy. And there may be some of you here this morning to which Christianity, Jesus, is a totally new thing, and maybe it just sounds odd. Following Jesus sounds boring at best, dangerous at worst. Maybe you aren't convinced that following Jesus is the blessed life. And if that's you this morning, well, I want you to listen up because Sam 2 will teach us that despite appearances, we are not the rulers of our own lives. There will be a day where we meet the true king of our lives, the true king of the world. 
And if you're not ready for that day, there will be serious consequences. For those of us here who are already following Jesus this morning, I think we need to be reminded that true blessing comes in obedience to God's King. If I'm honest, it it can be tempting to think that blessing lies elsewhere. If I didn't go to church, if I didn't serve, if I didn't give my money, if I didn't have these sets of beliefs, my life would be easier. I could follow my desires and not feel bad about it. I'd maybe fit in at work a bit better. And I think we can, as Christians, slowly become despairing. It maybe doesn't look like Jesus is king, and it's costly following him. And so I think we can begin to start questioning if this really is the blessed life after all. And if that's you this morning, well, I want you to listen up too, because Sam too will remind us that despite the way the world looks, despite appearances, God has his king sat on the throne and true blessing lies in obedience to him. I've got four points for us this morning. Firstly, the rebellious world rages, then the heavenly father laughs, the divine son rules, and finally we'll see the rebellious world is warned. But before we do all that, let me just pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Lord, I thank you that you haven't left us to guess about who you're like or who you are. And as we come to read and meditate on your word now, I pray that you would unstop our, our ears. You'd help to concentrate our minds, that you would soften our hearts. And I pray that in our time together, we might see you more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll take verse one to three first. That gives us our first point this morning, that rebellious world rages. That the world is full of rage and fighting and conflict, I don't think surprises us, sadly. We've seen plenty of war and fighting just in the last year alone. We've got an ongoing war in Ukraine and Russia. We have war in Israel and Palestine, war in Sudan, conflict in Iraq. War is the topic of many of our news headings. In fact, as I was doing prep for this sermon, I looked up how many wars were going on in the world right now. According to Wikipedia, there are 57 ongoing conflicts. And it's hard because it seems no amount of human effort can stop it. The United Nations was established in 1945 with the aim of instilling international peace. But since then, we have not known a day without war. Despite our very best efforts, we live in a world full of conflict, of hatred, of enmity and rage. But come with me to verse 1 to 3 and notice something shocking. Let me reread them. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Do you see what's going on here? The world that is normally pitted against each other is united on one common enemy. Verse 1, the nations conspire, the peoples are plotting, the kings are rising up, the rulers are taking counsel together, 
everyone is banding together. And just think about how amazing that is. Imagine what cause is so great that it could bring together Israel and Palestine. What enemy is so hated that Russian and Ukrainian soldiers could stand side by side on the battlefield? What could bring the world's superpowers like the USA, China and the Middle East together? That's surprising what we know of the world, that the world's in conflict all the time. But I think these verses are also surprising because of who the enemy is. Verse 2 tells us that the rulers of the earth are united in their hatred and their loathing of God and his king. This God who is the creator of the world, everything that we can see and everything that we can't see, he made. He created it and he continues to sustain it. And not only that, he sent his saviour to fix the world that we broke. This is a good God with a good king. And yet the world describes God's rule in restrictive terms. Look at verse 3. They say, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. They describe God's and his king's rule in restrictive terms. Like their animals kind of being held hostage, chained and shackled to the wall without any kind of freedom. That lie that God's rule is restrictive to human flourishing has been there from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, the snake says to Eve, God knows that when you eat the fruit of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. The snake whispers to Eve that God is holding her back. From the beginning of time, the devil has been telling us that God's rule doesn't lead to human flourishing, but it's limiting. We're in rebellion against God. The New Testament says we see that rebellion most clearly in the rejection of Jesus. He was God's king and he was hated by the world. He was made fun of. He was betrayed by his friends. He was hung on a cross to die. The author Luke tells us that Herod and Pilate, who were two rulers at the time, they were enemies. They hated each other. But they became friends over sentencing Jesus to death. And we see Sam too in action, right in action, in Jesus' life. The world coming together in hatred against the true king. It's, it's easy, I think, to think that the rebellion to God and his kings kind of out there in the world. It's those other people who hate God's. But this rebellion is in our hearts too. If I'm honest, it's in my heart too. When God says things that restrain my selfish ambition, that stop my greed and indulgence, or when he asks me to love him more than anything else, more than anyone else, I can at moments resent his rule. We don't always welcome the rule of God and his king in our lives. We can sometimes feel like verse 3 is true. We feel like we're handcuffed. Well, this section of the psalm begins with brutal honesty. The world back then, right now, out there and in here, well, we all hate God. And so the, the formula for the blessed life doesn't 
begin with some happy story about the goodness of humankind, but it lays bare our rebellious hearts. And we're left with the question, how will God react to this total rejection of him and his king? Let's reread verse four to six together. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God, in the face of human rebellion, laughs. That takes me on to our second point. The heavenly father laughs. The best opposition that the human race has to offer against God is scoffed at. Imagine the scene. King Jong-un, Putin, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Paul Potts, Osama bin Laden. Huge, cruel world leaders are lined up. And then along with them lined up are atheist thinkers like Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Fry, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. I'm sure you could list more. God looks at them with all their military might, with all their knowledge and arguments, and he laughs. These evil rulers of the world are no match for the heavenly father enthroned above. The rebellion is totally futile. When I was younger, I used to love trying to beat up my uncles. After some winding up, they would start, I start trying to punch them. And if you've ever met my uncles, they're big guys. They're over six foot. And you can imagine that five-year-old Rohan was no match for them. All they had to do was pop their hand out like that against my forehead. And it didn't matter how much I flailed my arms. They could just hold me at arm's length. They would just laugh at me. And I think what we have here is a a picture of that, but magnified. God looks down from his heavenly throne at the rebellion in the world and he laughs. When God stops laughing, he starts speaking. Verse five. The reason God's laugh, God laughs, is because he has installed his king to rule from his holy mountain. The existence of this king should terrify them. It was God who enthroned him, and he's going nowhere. He won't be defeated. This king won't be demoted. He won't get laid off. He won't be made to retire early. He won't fall out of favor. He won't be replaced by someone better. God's king rules, and so he laughs at human rebellion. Despite this being true, it often doesn't feel like God's king rules, does it? And I don't think we're alone in in feeling that. As we enter the book of Psalms, we'll see that we're not alone, actually, in feeling like God's king doesn't reign. Come with me to Psalm 3, verse 1. Let me just read the first two verses. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many of them are saying to me, God will not deliver him. Psalm 4 begins in a similar way. I'll just read the first verse there. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. 
that Psalm 5, 10 and 13 all begin with a cry to God. And you quickly get the idea. It is normal to wonder if God's king really does reign in light of persecution, in light of enemies, in light of personal distress. And that is why I think this is such an important psalm to have at the beginning of the Psalter. It reminds us, before we go on to read all these songs of Christ and laments, that although it doesn't feel like God's king reigns, he does. His reign is so secure against his foes and against all evil that God laughs. God's king is unshakable. (coughs) Human rebellion against God, it might look intimidating to us, but it is utter folly. God laughs in the face of our rebellion against him. We've seen the rebellious world raging. We've seen the heavenly father laughing, but now we see the divine son ruling. The divine son rules in verse seven to nine. We now hear the voice of this king. And let me reread the verses. So God's king speaks and he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The king himself speaks. And he retells what God has decreed. In verse 7, the king is appointed as an heir to God's estate. And what is God's estate? Well, verse 8 tells us that the nations will be the son's inheritance. The ends of the world belong to God. We were thinking about that in the kids' talk. God, God's king inherits the very nations that were in rebellion to him in verse 1. King David, who wrote this psalm, didn't experience the full reality of that promise. He wasn't king over the whole world. In fact, Israel didn't even fully occupy the lands, never mind the nations around them. And so this points us forward to another one who calls himself God's son, Jesus. Jesus' baptism, Luke records that a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And a few chapters later, at Jesus' transfiguration, Luke record that God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Acts 13 says that on the day Jesus was raised from the dead, he was declared to be God's ultimate king. And so this psalm is fully fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is called God's son by the Father. Jesus is God's king. He is the rightful inheritor of the whole world. Everywhere, everyone belongs to Jesus, God's son and king. I think verse 9 then is, is a bit of a surprise. God has given his ruling son a job to do with his inheritance. Let me read it. You will break them with a rod of iron. 
you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Verse 9 tells us that when the end of the world comes and the nations are still rebelling against gods, then his king is to break them as an iron bar breaks a vase. Just like a piece of pottery that falls out the window when you drop a plate on the floor, it smashes into a tiny million pieces. And so God's king too will destroy the rebellious. One day, Jesus will return to judge the earth. And those who insist and persist in rebellion against him, they will be crushed. Living a life where we are the rulers of our own lives, it it might look good, it might even feel good, but it has serious consequences. The blessed life is not the one where we are in charge. Our way has one ending, and it's not happy. And I think this verse can seem cruel in a way, but it's not. There is mercy in the warning. God gives the world warning of what's going to happen. We're going to see soon that God is far more than just merciful in warning us. He is gracious in offering us a way back. That takes me on to our final point together this morning. The rebellious world is warned. Come with me the final time to Psalm 2, and I'll just read the last three verses. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, ye rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The rebellious world is warned. That's my final point. The rebellious world is warned to change their lives. They're told to wise up in verse 10. Being wise doesn't appeal to everyone. Some want to live their life for the here and now and forget the consequences. To live life their own way, to forge their own path, ignoring that there will be a day when Jesus returns to judge the earth. I'm sure we all have stories of times we should have listened to the warnings that we were given. When I was younger, much younger, my sister and I were desperate to see Curious George in the cinema. And my mum promised us that if we had our bath time and didn't get the carpet wet, I don't know why there was a carpet in the bathroom, but anyway, but if we didn't get the carpet wet, we could go to the cinema. And you can imagine what happens. My mum heard me splashing. She popped her head around the bathroom door and said, Rohan, be careful. But it didn't matter. Two minutes later, I was seeing how big a wave I could make in the bathtub. And you can imagine the wave got too big, splashed over, and the floor was soaking wet with water. But it was also wet because I was crying at that point because we weren't going to the cinema. And my mum had warned me multiple times. The warning was there. It was repeated time and time again. And I chose to ignore it. And I had to live with the consequences. We didn't go to the cinema. I still think about that. It's a trivial example, but God has given us warning time and time again about the wise way to live our lives. To live our life 
as God as our king is the truly blessed, the truly happy way to live. Our way, where we declare ourselves the ruler of our own lives, where we call God's rule restrictive, like chains and shackles, that leads to destruction in verse 12. God will be angry if we refuse to acknowledge his king. The blessed way to live your life is to have God as your king. It's to serve him with fear. It's to celebrate his good rule with trembling in verse 11. It's to pay homage to him and find refuge in his good, perfect rule. And I think this verse says to serve the Lord with fear and trembling because this is God. Jesus does become our friend, but he remains our creator and savior. And so he deserves our awe and respect. The blessed way to live your life is to have God as your king. Even though we have rebelled against Jesus, God's grace is big. He's willing to take you back. There is refuge under his rule. True blessing, true happiness is found in serving and finding refuge in God's king. Serving Jesus, it's not restrictive, but the source of true happiness. As we wrap up our time together, I want to ask you, where will you find happiness? Where will you find blessing? Psalm 1 showed us that true blessing lies in delighting in God's words. This week, we've seen that blessing lies in delighting in God's son. If you're someone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus... I want to urge you to reconsider. God warns you that not having him as your king will lead to eternal disaster. It might look good, it might feel good, but Jesus will come again to destroy those who have insisted and persisted in going their own way. All is not lost. Despite our rebellion, God has mercy and warns us of the danger to come and warns us to find refuge in him. Ask Jesus to be the king of your life today. There'll be some here this morning who do know Jesus. I want to challenge you. Stop looking over your shoulder. The blessed life is the one spent serving God's king. It's not found out there. It's found in obedience to God's king. Recommit yourself to following him, to serving Jesus. But there is encouragement for Christians here too. As we serve Jesus in a world that hates him, where enemies thrive, where evil seems to be winning, do not worry. God's king reigns over all. His power and authority are not challenged. Serve God's King, finding refuge and true happiness in him.